Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Uh, Putin says that conditions may arise for peace talks. So this is comments that he made on Monday. Uh, the Russian leader said that the necessary conditions for peace talks with Ukraine could arise, although he did acknowledge that Kiev is not ready for negotiations at the moment. Uh, he said at a press conference in Sochi, this is according to Newsweek, he said, quote, we reached an agreement with them in Istanbul, but they've thrown all of that into the bin, and now they're refusing to discuss anything with us, end quote. So he's referring to those talks that took place at the end of March between Russian and Ukrainian officials in person. And uh, things seemed promising then, and they, were, they reportedly reached a tentative deal, but things fell apart. We know Boris Johnson went over to Kiev and told Zelensky not to negotiate, uh, likely uh, with the full blessing of the U.S. Um, and then after those talks fell apart, that's when we saw the U.S. saying they want to weaken Russia. Turkey said there's some NATO members that want to continue the war to weaken Russia. Um, and then that's when that big $40 billion aid package was passed. And in response to Russia's, this is recent now, uh, in response to Russia's annexation of the territory that it controls in Ukraine, Zelensky has signed a decree ruling out peace talks with Russia as long as Putin is president. And the U.S. has ruled out the idea of pushing Ukraine to the negotiating table. And they're saying it's up to Zelensky when talks will begin. Putin said that Russia is willing to wait until talks can happen. He said, quote, how can we talk about possible agreements if the other side has no desire to even talk to us? Well, we can wait. Maybe some necessary conditions will eventually arise. We have made our goodwill known, end quote. So while the U.S. and Ukraine have rejected the idea of diplomacy, at least publicly, over the past month about, as I've been covering, and I hope I'm not being too redundant, but I think it's important just to highlight how Russian officials keep saying that they're open to talks. I mean, it's like almost every day, it seems like lately, whether it's Putin, or, you know, Putin himself saying it, or Lavrov, his foreign minister, or Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, they keep saying it. And I think, uh, you know, if President Biden was responsible, he would definitely take them up on the offer to at least see what they have to say, you know, considering he thinks there's a risk of nuclear Armageddon. It's really criminal to not be trying to pursue any kind of diplomacy. Um, so, and then I mentioned again, some interesting comments that I saw last month from this guy named Dan Rice, who is an American who serves as an advisor to the commander of Ukraine's armed forces. He's an American. He was working for a private company when he was hired to advise this uh, Ukrainian commander. But he recently said that he believes his assessment is that Russia is trying to force negotiations to the 2014 lines, which refers to the positions that Russia held before the February 24th invasion, which that means Crimea and uh, part of the Donbass were that the separatists controlled. Uh, but Rice said that Ukraine doesn't want that. And Ukrainian officials have made clear they've said so explicitly that their goals, they want to drive Russia out of all the territory it controls, and they want to drive it out of Crimea. So in their minds, this war is going to keep going on for years and years because uh, that's what it would take, it seems like. And, you know, so that's just where we're at 
again, if negotiations are to happen, the U.S. is going to have to um, push for them, push Ukraine to go to the table because they are completely reliant. Their war effort, the funding of their government is completely reliant on the U.S. Uh, all right. The next one here, Russia considers further steps over the allegation that the U.K. was behind the Nord Stream blasts. So the Kremlin on Tuesday said Russia was considering what he called further steps to take in response to Britain's alleged role in the attacks on the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines, which connect Russia to Germany. Peskov said, quote, such actions cannot be put aside. Of course, we will think about further steps. It definitely cannot be left like this, end quote. So he's hinting at maybe potential retaliation. So. On Saturday, Russia's defense ministry accused British naval specialists, as they put it, of being involved in the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines. And London has denied the Russian accusation, uh, of course. Um, And I point out in the article that, according to experts, uh, it looks like this the leaks from the Nord Stream pipelines resulted in the largest ever methane gas release. Um, Because I just think it's... It's interesting how, you know, the U.S. and Western media who are very concerned about or say they're very concerned about the environment and and all this green energy and stuff just don't have much to say. They really haven't had much to say about this major pollution uh, event here. But anyway, uh, so Peskov claimed that Russia has evidence of the British involvement in the attacks, but Russia has yet to present anything. I've seen a lot of rumors floating around on Twitter and stuff, but nothing uh, confirmed that I would want to really pass along. Um, But Peskov is saying that they have evidence again, but they haven't shown it. Uh, In the wake of the pipeline leaks, we saw Western officials and media outlets claiming that Russia was behind the blast. But, um, you know, Russia really doesn't have the motive to destroy these pipelines because they're they own them. They spent billions building them. Um, They're mainly owned by Gazprom, which is the Russian state gas company. Uh, The U.S. had the motive to do it, as we've talked about a lot, as they've long opposed the construction of Nord Stream 2. They tried to stop it with sanctions. Um, Biden threatened to end the pipeline before Russia invaded. And Blinken said that the attack was a tremendous opportunity to wean Europe off Russian gas. But still, at this point, uh, you know, there hasn't been any evidence made public that shows the U.S. or any of its allies were involved in the blast. We just don't know for sure. Denmark and Sweden are conducting investigations into the leaks and concluded they were caused by explosions, but they haven't named the culprit and they're not sharing many details. So that's the thing. I mean, I just doubt we're going to get much out of these investigations. And now Russia is saying that they're conducting their own investigation. And they said that Gazprom was allowed to inspect the leaks. The, um, after At first, Sweden and Denmark didn't let them. But after a few weeks, they, they let them get in there and check it out. And they concluded it was sabotage like everybody else. Um, so, uh, you know, Russia, it's just worth pointing out that Russia is kind of hinting at potential retaliation. And they also accused the UK of being involved with the drone attack on the Black Sea fleet in Crimea. And we don't, again, we don't know if that's true, but we do know the facts that we do know is that according to multiple media reports, there are British special operations forces inside Ukraine. So they could potentially be helping them plan attacks like that. Um, 
But anyway, the next story that we have here. Um, so after over eight months of pouring weapons into Ukraine, the U.S. finally announces some oversight steps. Um, so this was announced uh, on October 27th. The State Department released these plans. And they're saying that they're focusing on keeping powerful portable weapons like Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles off the black market, trying to keep them from being traded illegally. Uh, Because, I mean, those weapons can do some serious damage, could even potentially take down commercial airliners. Um, And Responsible Statecraft had a report about this um, on Tuesday that said experts are warning, and it quoted some experts that said that the plan has a lot of gaps and it doesn't address all the types of weapons that the U.S. is sending, including smaller arms. And the State Department has said that in order to achieve its oversight goals, the U.S. is going to focus on bolstering the ability of Ukraine and other regional countries to account for safeguards, um, to account for and safeguard their arms and ammunition to strengthen their borders, and bolster security agencies to deter illicit trafficking of certain advanced conventional weapons. So again, the the focus seems to be on the advanced weapons here. And another aspect of the uh, effort is in-person inspections being conducted by the U.S. military, which I went over yesterday. So the Pentagon has confirmed that there is a U.S. military presence on the ground in Ukraine based out of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. And they're conducting inspections of weapons. This is according to the Pentagon. But it marks the first official confirmation of a U.S. military presence in Ukraine since Russia invaded on February 24th. Uh, The Pentagon did not provide much detail on where the inspections are taking place. They just said they're being conducted by personnel based at the embassy. Um, And Pentagon spokesman uh, Patrick Ryder, he told reporters on Tuesday that there are also U.S. Marines at the embassy conducting guard duties on top of the weapons inspectors. So the way this reads in all the mainstream reports is that, oh, yeah, we knew this because there's a defense attache at the embassy in Kiev saying that this stuff has been announced already, saying that um, it was known that there was Marines doing uh, guard duty at the embassy, which is typical of any embassy around the world. But I don't think we really did know that because when the U.S. first reopened the embassy in Kiev, They were saying that they were just sending State Department like a security detail instead of the Marines. Um, So this stuff is just slowly. And then the defense attache was announced by Ukraine in August, but I never saw the Pentagon confirm it. And uh, so it's all, you know, what they call mission creep. Uh, The U.S. is slowly getting more and more involved in Ukraine. And now, you know, in the name of inspecting weapons, there's military personnel traveling around the country. And, uh, So the rider, the Pentagon spokesman, he also said that inspectors would not be near the front lines. Um, But according to media reports, there's another U.S. presence on the ground, uh, and that's special operations forces and CAA operatives. But that the covert operations have not been officially confirmed by Washington. And President Biden had repeatedly said, uh, you know, this U.S. presence in Ukraine comes after he repeatedly said, The U.S. would not send troops into Ukraine. Uh, He said before Russia's invasion, when asked about that, he said no. He said it could spark a world war. So he said that, yet this is happening. And of course, you know, the Pentagon is saying they're not combat troops. 
you know, this isn't showing that we're getting more involved in the war, but I think it definitely is because we know how things escalate like this. Um, but up to, again, just this point with the State Department announcing this oversight, it really is amazing that tens of billions of dollars weapons later, uh, they're finally announcing some oversight measures. Um, and who knows really how much, how effective it, it would be or how much they're really even going to implement it. Uh, but all right, I want to take a moment to mention our great sponsor, How the West Brought War to Ukraine by Benjamin Ablo. It's a short, it's about 70 pages, and it's a great summary of all the events that brought us here today, uh, specifically focusing on U.S. and NATO provocations. And it's endorsed by a lot of great people. And um, if you, you can purchase it for $10 on Amazon and you can also purchase the uh, Kindle version, I believe, for $3.99. I should double-check on that. But um, also, uh, there is an audio version coming out, which is great, because I know that's how a lot of people uh, read books these days, is um, by listening to the audiobook. So that's going to come out on Audible. Yeah, the Kindle version is $3.99. And also, um, I'm going to put... Uh, if people want Benjamin's uh, contact information, he told me that, you know, if you have an anti-war group or a religious group, any kind of group that you meet with and, and you want to share this book, because I think it's a really good book for something like that to educate people on this stuff. Um, if you contact him, he could uh, set you up with a nice discount if you want to buy in bulk. Um, you know, he's really dedicated to getting this message out there. That seems to be his priority. Um, so, if that's something you're interested in, let me know and I'll give you his email. You could also find it in the book if you have the book. Uh, but yeah, how the West brought war to Ukraine and you could buy it, purchase it in the, the link in the show notes and the description. Um, all right, back into the news here. Um, where was I? Oh, Turkey. Turkey is not happy with Sweden's uh, what they're calling elegant promises to crack down on the Kurds. So Turkey's ruling Justice and Development Party, that's the AKP, that's the party of Erdogan, the president, has said that Turkey is not happy with promises Sweden has made to crack down on Kurdish groups in an effort to join NATO. And I got this from a report in the Cradle. So the spokesman for the AKP said Monday that Sweden, quote, makes very beautiful, elegant promises at the very highest level, but they are not enough until they are implemented, end quote. He added that Turkey is waiting for these promises to come to life. Turkey signed a deal with Sweden and Finland back in June where the two Nordic countries agreed to cooperate with Turkey on the PKK, which is a Kurdish militant group, Turkey. The EU and the US consider to be a terrorist organization. And they also want them to cooperate on cracking down on PK, PKK affiliates, which the US, uh, some of them the US backs in Syria, in Northeast Syria. It's one of those situations where in Northeast Syria, uh, they're the US allies, and you cross the border into Turkey, and the US starts calling them terrorists. Um, so, but anyway, the, so the new Swedish government um, that came to power last month in October has said that it would fulfill the deal with Turkey. The, the government before that was kind of struggling in negotiations with Turkey. They were under a lot of pressure not to um, extradite these Kurds that, that Turkey wants extradited. But I guess what this uh, Turkish official is saying um, 
it sounds like concrete steps still haven't been taken to, to do what Turkey is, is looking for here. I think the main thing is extraditing the suspected PKK members and other people that they accuse of being terrorists from Sweden. It's Sweden and Finland, but it's mainly Sweden seems to be where most of these people are. And Erdogan has warned a few times that Turkey um, will, Turk, the Turkish parliament will block Sweden and Finland from joining NATO if they don't fulfill this deal. So far, 28 out of 30 NATO members have, have ratified them joining, and, and that's their legislatures. They need to be ratified. In the U.S., it was the Senate that ratified it. Uh, but the only holdouts right now are Hungary and Turkey. And Finland's prime minister on Tuesday called on these countries to let them join NATO. Finland seems pretty eager to join. I mean, they're both eager. They're trying to join. But Finland has an over... 800 mile border with Russia and they're willing to host US nuclear weapons according to Finnish media reports and it's very unlikely that that would happen at least in the near future but just the fact that they're saying that I mean that's very provocative to Russia on that huge border that they share if, if they're placing US nukes right there man uh, how would Russia respond to that but you know there's a chance here that Turkey blocks them from joining uh, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, the next one here. Oh, so uh, Israeli elections were held on Tuesday. And right now the exit polls show that Netanyahu is coming back. It uh, looks like he won. Again, these are exit polls. Votes are still being counted. There's a chance it could change. But it seems pretty likely that Netanyahu uh, has made a comeback here. And uh, he's expected, his Likud party is expected to partner with um, these uh, groups that they consider, other parties they consider to be far right in Israeli politics. So uh, we'll see if you're listening to this on, on, you know, later on Tuesday, I'm sure the news is already out on this, if it's official yet. Uh, but we'll see what uh, Netanyahu you know, does when he comes back in. All right. So the next one here, the Saudi Arabia is claiming in a warning to the U S that Iran is preparing to attack the kingdom. So Saudi Arabia has claimed that Iran is preparing imminent attacks on Saudi Arabia and Northern Iraq. This is according to the wall street journal. The report said that Saudi officials have shared intelligence with Washington and in response to the warning, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and several other countries in the region have put their militaries on higher alert. At this point, there's no indication that Iran is planning to attack Saudi Arabia besides the Saudi claim. So it's just important to note here that the Saudis, they often blame Iran for Houthi attacks on Saudi Arabia. But those operations are a response to the U.S.-backed war that the Saudis have been waging on Yemen since 2015. They've been in a war with the Houthis. The Houthis have every reason, uh, although there's been a ceasefire and, and there haven't been any reported Houthi attacks inside Saudi Arabia or Saudi airstrikes inside Yemen since March. But you know, before then, the Houthis had every reason to attack the Saudis. They're, they've been waging a war against Yemen, a brutal war uh, and a blockade. Um, but uh, the war in Yemen could escalate at any moment. The ceasefire expired in the beginning of October. I believe it was on October 2nd. 
There's been fighting on the ground, but still I haven't seen any reports of Saudi airstrikes in Yemen or Houthi attacks in Saudi Arabia. So this warning is strange because, I mean, the idea that Iran would just attack Saudi Arabia just seems like nonsense to me. Um, but maybe this is kind of a pretext for an attack on Yemen. I mean, I think that's a that would be uh, kind of the worst uh, result of this uh strange warning that they've made. Hopefully it's not true, but I don't know. I kind of have a bad feeling about it. And the Saudis, they're also claiming that Iran is preparing uh, to attack Iraq, the northern Kurdish region. And they're saying that they're going to do this to distract from the civil unrest inside Tehran, uh, inside Iran, I should have said. So in recent weeks, uh, I know at least in, in the end of Towards the end of September, Iran did launch attacks on Iraqi Kurdistan missile strikes. There was drones flying around, targeting what they say are Kurdish separatists, fomenting violence inside Iran. And part, as these protests have been going on, there's been a lot of attacks on Iranian uh, forces inside Iran uh, by separatist groups. Um, so it's not just you know uh, protests; it's also a lot of uh, attacks. It seems like. Um, but when it comes to these Iranian attacks inside Iraq, uh, this is a risk, a pretty major risk of uh, the U.S. And because the U.S. is still there, there's 2,500 troops in Iraq, including in Erbil, which is in the Kurdistan region. Um, there's just and that presence is a tripwire for a war with Iran or other, you know, forces in the region. And uh the U.S. said that it shot down an Iranian drone in Iraq back in September. I mean, that really shows how, you know, something could spark over there. Um, but again, this is from the Saudis who are tend to be pretty unreliable. So uh, there's definitely a chance Iran could launch more attacks in Iraq because they have been. Um, but the, the attacks in Saudi Arabia, I'm way more skeptical of. But the White House is saying that they're ready. They're ready to respond uh, and that they're concerned and that, they're all worried about the Saudis now. And this comes after as U.S.-Saudi relations are at a pretty low point due to the OPEC plus decision to cut oil production, which came ahead of U.S. midterm elections. The Biden administration is not happy. Democrats in Congress are not happy. And they're threatening consequences. But so far, they haven't taken any concrete action. So maybe this is, you know, the Saudis are just trying to remind them that, you know, you got to help us, you know, we're your friends against Iran. I don't know. Who knows with this warning? It's strange, but hopefully it's not a pretext for an escalation in Yemen. Okay, so the last news story we got here is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, the U.S. says that it will never accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons state. Uh, so the State Department has said that Washington demands the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and that it would never accept Pyongyang as a nuclear weapon state. Uh, Ned Price, the State Department spokes spokesman, was asked if there was a possibility that the U.S. would eventually recognize North Korea as a nuclear state. And he said, no, that's not our policy. Um, and in September... Uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, he signed a new decree which said North Korea would not give up its nuclear weapons unless the rest of the world denuclearized and America abandoned its aggressive policy. So there's been all these missile tests going on 
North Korea launching missile tests, the U.S. and South Korea conducting major war games, and the U.S. line is denuclearization, but that's just a non-starter for talks with the North. Um, they have to offer some kind of concessions like sanctions relief to, to if they want to start negotiations. Um, keeping this position is just going to continue, uh, keep tensions high, and nothing's really, there's not really going to be any progress unless they switch their approach. But it doesn't seem like a priority at all for the Biden administration to change anything here. They seem pretty happy with the status quo and uh, restarting all these war games and stuff in the region. Uh, that's it for me for the news. It was kind of a light day. Um, nothing too exciting, but that's good in this uh, business that I'm in here. <laughs> it's good to have a light news day uh, for the world. Uh, and uh, But we have a lot of great viewpoints, as always. We have a few originals from Ted Snyder, Brett Wilkins, and we have one uh, from Douglas McGregor, the colonel. Um, I believe this is at the American Conservative that we link to here. Yeah, the American Conservative. It's a great article people should check out. Uh, but that's it. I'll catch you tomorrow with some more news. Um, support the show. You could, you know, our fundraiser's over, but you could always make a donation. You could set up a, a recurring monthly donation. If you go to antiwar.com slash donate, follow me on Twitter, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Odyssey, Rumble, tell your friends about the show, all that. Uh, and thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow.